Good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. It's interesting, I I say that every Sunday, welcome to Grace Bible Church, when ultimately you are the church. We gather together as the church, right? So welcome to the gathering of Grace Bible Church would probably be the more accurate accurate way to say it. But I, I will tell you that I am incredibly thankful for the fellowship that we enjoy every time that we meet. Uh, I look forward, I, I can't imagine uh, missing the gathering for very, very long personally because I get, gain so much out of it. I gain so much out of it. Uh, you know, the Greek word for fellowship is uh, koinonia. Uh, this, word, this word has the idea of participation or, or sharing, uh, or participation and sharing. In other words, we participate in one another's lives, said another way, now, we share our lives with one another. Uh, this is, there is something uh, amazing about Christian fellowship. I think fellowship between brothers and sisters in Christ is really a, a small taste of what life will be like in the eternal city. And when God reconciles all things to himself, we will experience an existence that is unimaginable to our finite minds. We will be in a place where, we, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no longer any death, and there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. But for now, as you are well aware, for now we still have the reality of sin in this world, do we not? As much as I wish this were untrue, as much as I would love to wish it away, we still have the reality of sin in the church among God's people. As Christians, we are a new creation and new creations in Christ, yet at times, many times, we still act fleshly uh, toward one another. Said another way, more bluntly, we sin against each other. Uh, Justin McKittrick out of uh, Jacksonville, Grace Jacksonville, says that we are all porcupines going around poking and getting poked. I think sometimes we, even, we forget that we are poking at the same time we're getting poked. When we share our lives with each other, when with others, when we share a closeness with one another, there is great potential for conflict. Just as blood brothers and sisters tend to fight and argue, as Christians we fight within the church. Now hopefully that doesn't mean that we come to physical blows, uh, like brothers and sisters can do, uh, but we certainly land our blows on each other on a regular basis, do we not? Many times Christians can have major conflicts on matters where each side seems to have a legitimate case. Other times, the matter may be cut and dried. One party has clearly wronged another. Sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes uh, someone is wronged and doesn't say anything for years. They may even leave the church. They may even leave Christianity because of being wronged. They refuse to return to fellowship because of the hurt they've experienced. In such cases, they carry bitterness with them until it comes spewing out on everyone around them. Have you not seen those things happen? In all of these situations, forgiveness is the key to avoid long-term conflict and bitterness. Unfortunately, many churches have even been destroyed due to a lack of forgiveness for wrongs committed. This reminds me of a story about a man named John Oglethorpe and talking to John Wesley once made the comment, I never forgive. I never forgive. Mr. Wesley 
wisely replied, then, sir, I hope that you never sin. You see, Grace Bible Church could easily, very easily fall prey to this lurking danger. Satan loves to take down Christians, but I will tell you that he adores. He absolutely adores destroying churches. He would like nothing more than to see Grace Bible Church destroyed. He loves it even more when all he has to do is stoke the flames of unforgiveness between fellow believers. We are constantly cutting one another with little daggers. Therefore, we must model forgiveness in our interactions with one another. The question is, how do we forgive one another when we're dying a death of a thousand cuts? We are bombarded with the flaming arrows of the evil one. And as Christians, we have our Lord who has perfectly demonstrated forgiveness toward us. As Paul writes, in him, that is in in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In the words of a well-known secular humanist, spoken just before she died in 1988, Marganita Lasky, she said this, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me, end quote. Church, we have been forgiven much more than we are called to forgive. Therefore, there is a great weight of responsibility to forgive others just as we have been forgiven. In Paul's words in Colossians 3, so those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Truly forgiveness, though, as you and I both know, truly forgiveness is easier said than done. It's easier said than done. This is true for a variety of reasons. Today we are embarking on a short four or five week, we'll see how it goes, study in the the New Testament book of Philemon, Philemon is how I pronounce it. Um, I think it's Philemon, Philemon in the Greek. It's, um, I forget what somebody told me today, this week. It was pronounced uh, Philemon. That's it, Philemon. But I, I will say Philemon. Forgive me if that is not what you, how you pronounce it. But this little letter written by Paul uh, to a man named Philemon may be, in my opinion, the most intriguing of the New Testament. I pray that we will find the answers to how we are to forgive one another and how we are to be a forgiving church as we explore this, what I will say is a beautiful, beautiful letter written by the Apostle Paul. Let me pray, and then we're going to actually read the letter together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this this morning as we gather. Lord, may we look to your word. May we live according to your word, even the hard parts. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read the text. The Apostle Paul, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, soldier, 
and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may, be, may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ in order to do what is proper, in order to, to order you to do what is proper, that is, Yet for the saints, saints, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but now, but more than a slave, a beloved brother." especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If, you then, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay, repay it not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. What a beautiful letter. In November 1991, Jerry Jenkins wrote a bizarre true story about a man awakened in the middle of the night by a phone call. He was groggy. The girl on the other end was weeping. Daddy, she said, I'm pregnant. Though stunned beyond belief, he forgave her and prayed with her. The next day, he and his wife wrote two letters of counsel and love. Three days later, the man received another phone call. His daughter was shocked by the letters. She was not, she was not the one who had called earlier the few days before. Apparently, some other girl had dialed the wrong number. These letters are my treasure, the daughter later said. Real love letters written by a godly father who never imagined he would have to write them to his own daughter. Here are a few excerpts of those letters. The father says, Part of me seemed to die last night, not because of what it means to me as much as what it means to you. You were free to make all kinds of choices, 
Now you are shut up to a few and none of them to your liking. But God will see you and us through. Though I weep inside, I I cannot condemn you because I sin as well. Your transgression here is no worse than mine. It's just different. Even if my heart did not shout out to love and defend and protect you as it does, the New Testament tells me I can't take forgiveness myself and withhold it from others. We think of sin as acts, but sin is a package, an attitude that expresses itself in different ways and to different degrees. But it all comes from the same sin package you inherited through us. Christ is the only difference. God forgives sin, forgives this sin as well as others, really forgives and cleanses. David was a man of God when he went into his experience with Bathsheba, and in the grace of God, he came out a man of God. And his sin even included murder. Satan has no doubt tried to tell you that this affects your standing before God. It doesn't, but it will affect your relationship until you bring the whole matter to him. There, could be, there will be a coolness, a separation, an estrangement, estrangement until you open the problem by confessing and asking for forgiveness. I will not, I will not reproach you or your boyfriend. I will not even dare to look down on you in my innermost heart, but it is not because this issue doesn't matter. The responsibility is his no less than yours. This is not the ideal basis for marriage. You want a husband who takes you by choice, but if you face the issue and God so leads, he could still build a solid marriage. We stand ready to do whatever we can. We're praying much. We love you more than I can say and respect you too as always. Saturday I was very downcast. I tried to sing as I worked outside and then increasingly I seemed to see a calm and loving face I knew was Christ. It was no vision. I didn't see details, but it was a strong reminder that He is with us and waiting for us to remember this. He loves us and He will help us through, especially you. It is great to know that Jesus is walking with you. While we can't say that God causes failures, He does permit them. And I think it's clear that He uses them to build character and beauty that we'd never have without them. Remember God's love is in even this, maybe especially this. We're glad that in a measure at least we can help our daughter love so much. This is a day of testing, but we must hold our ground. God will give us the victory. That's wonderful. We're looking forward, looking forward to your being at home. Love, Dad. As you listen to the story, I hope you have considered how you would respond in similar circumstances. If you received news like this, would you be quick to forgive? Or would you withhold that forgiveness? If you... If given time to stew over the situation, I mean, he had this next day to stew over it. Would the sinning party be able to say that your written words are their treasure? Real love letters written by a godly person who graciously endured a wrong. I'm certain that most of us would struggle to say yes to these questions. Many of us, including myself, might have a tendency to lash out and say, how could you do this? If we sat down to write a letter, it would be to better explain how we've been wronged. 
Many families have been destroyed by unforgiving hearts. Many churches have been split or even destroyed by unforgiving, prideful people. Clearly, these things don't reflect God's heart for forgiveness. Yet, even as Christians, we tend to struggle in that way. Paul's letter to Philemon gives us great insight into God's expectations, expectation for believers to forgive one another. Now, with that, I want to give you the series outline. So, in this letter, the Apostle Paul is giving what I would say are four instructions for how to be a forgiving church or how to be a forgiving person, if you will. But I think this is more on the church level, and I think you'll see why. We must be a church first, and we're going to see this today, marked by Christian fellowship. We must be a church made up of authentic fellow or authentic believers. We must be a, a church measured by genuine, genuine forgiveness. And we must be a church motivated by confident obedience. Now, that's going to be the series, that's the series outline. Today, we're going to look at the first three verses. We must be a church marked by Christian fellowship. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to give a brief overview of this little letter. In all, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Now, if you count Hebrews, he actually wrote, would have wrote 14. And I, I actually lean a little bit in that direction uh, that he wrote Hebrews. So, in either case, he wrote a large portion of the New Testament. Now, clearly, his writings are held in high regard by the New Testament church, and we included, love, Paul's writings. But of all of his letters, Philemon may be the most neglected. Paul's letter to Philemon is quite unlike any of his other epistles. First off, it's incredibly short, only 25 verses. In fact, it's one of the shortest books in the Bible. Uh, the, the letter also is very private in nature. It has been written uh, about a private matter. Uh, it has also been written that, uh, by others that Philemon is the finest specimen of early personal Christian correspondence available to us. Paul wrote other letters directly to a recipient. He wrote two letters to Timothy and one letter to Titus, but he wrote this letter concerning what would be a very private matter. But this was a private matter that would, or maybe even had become very public due to its nature, due to the situation in the church. In other words, it had great potential to do great damage to the body of Christ in, in that city, in that church. Or it had the potential to do great good, depending upon the outcome. Paul wrote this letter to a man named Philemon. Apparently, this man lived in Colossa uh, under Paul uh, and was a very influential member of the church there. Most likely, he had been saved under Paul's ministry during his time in Ephesus, which was about uh, 100 miles from this, from this city of Colossa. The Colossian church was planted uh, during Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus. The church was founded by a man named Epaphras, who was probably saved during a visit to Ephesus where he met Paul. Likely, Epaphras planted the church when he returned to his hometown. Uh, Paul sent his letter to Philemon then, along with the letter we call Colossians. Uh, he addressed that letter to the, entire to the entire church. And what we're going to find is, is that even though the direct recipient of this letter is a man named Philemon, that he actually addresses it to the entire, entire church. Now, he sent 
Tychicus, and we saw Tychicus when we were studying Ephesians, he sent Tychicus to deliver the letters to the church. He probably delivered all three letters, the letter to Ephesus, the letter to the Colossian church, and the letter of Philemon. He probably delivered all of those. Now, Tychicus had a traveling companion named Onesimus. Onesimus. Now, it is fascinating that not only was Onesimus by uh, uh, Tychicus's uh, traveling com- companion, he was potentially he was the potentially su- explosive subject. I'll get it out in a minute. He was the potentially explosive subject of the letter to Philemon. He wrote these letters at the, about the same time. The two letters, Colossians and Philemon, about the same time he wrote the letter to Ephesus, as I said earlier. Now, if you recall from our study in Ephesians, this is somewhere but around 60 to 62 A.D. during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Now, as a preacher, I love to read the New Testament letters while trying to piece together the story behind the words. <clears throat> we do this by studying the ba- any background comments the author makes. The, the salutation and the benediction of the letters are critical resources for understanding the background. Now, here's what you need to understand. This task, which we call, which is called mirror reading, so you're reading the, the material, and then you're trying to mirror the actual situation. You're trying to understand why this person is writing it, and so this task can actually be very challenging. Uh, you see, the writers don't feel the need to give background information when both parties already know the issues. So they don't explain, well, I'm saying this because you know what this. They, they, they just say, this is what, these are the things that I'm addressing. Now, with Philemon, this challenge has caused scholars to piece together a few different possible scenarios. Now, as we piece together the story, which I think is important for us to do, as we piece together the story, let's look at what we know of the situation from what the Bible says. What we know about the situation from reading the letter, we know that Paul was writing as a prisoner of Rome to Philemon. We know that from from history. We know that from other letters. We know that Paul was a prisoner of Rome, that he had been taken to Rome to be able to be to be able to have a stand before Caesar. We also know that that Philemon was part of the church at Colossae or Colossa. The the church. Also, we also know the church actually meets in his house. We know that from Philemon 2. Now, Paul sent a man named Onesimus back to Philemon. He sent him back. And so, Onesimus, we also know that Onesimus had been with Philemon, but had traveled to Rome where he met with Paul. Now, in the letter, Paul referred to this man as a slave. So we know that as well. That's another piece of data. While in Rome, Onesimus had become a saint and servant of Christ who was dear to Paul. And also, Paul hopes, according to this letter, that this change in Onesimus, so from, from being an unbeliever to being a believer, that this change in Onesimus will endear him. It has endeared him to Paul, but it will endear him to Philemon as well. Now, some scholars suggest that Philemon and Onesimus are physical brothers who have quarreled. Therefore, Paul is sending Onesimus back to reconcile with Philemon. Now, that view requires us to take the word brother as literal while taking the word slave metaphorically. But nothing in the context suggests this to be the case. Other scholars suggest that Onesimus was an emissary sent to Paul by the church of the Colossian church. 
Uh, in that case, Paul is a- appealing to Philemon to allow Onesimus to stay with him as a free man. This view has no doubt been put forth by those wishing to read into this letter a modern attitude towards slavery. And frankly, I don't see any, any merit to these two views. I believe the most excuse me, I believe the most likely view is the traditional view, which has been held since at least the time of Chrysostom, but it's probably earlier than that, in the early 400s. But we know that that the early church held this view of this letter. So here is the most likely backstory. Philemon was a wealthy man from the city of Colossae. By God's providence, he met, met Paul in Ephesus, who preached the gospel to him and also to a man named Epaphras. The two of them, Philemon and Epaphras, either knew each other prior to conversion or became acquainted through Paul. Or they may have become acquainted when they got back to Colossae. We know that they became acquainted. They returned to the city where they planted a church that met in Philemon's home. So you had Philemon who provided really the the backing to this situation, and you have have, um, Epaphras who who did... who had uh, the spiritual leadership, if you will. So they returned to Colossae, and they planted this church that met in his home, Philemon's home. And so Philemon then uh, must have been a a wealthy man, Uh, therefore, or at least wealthy in in those days' standards. And therefore, he owned slaves, uh, probably even household slaves. Onesimus may have been, I would say probably was, a household slave who was traveling with Philemon, who could have been traveling with Philemon when he first met Paul. So it is very possible that Onesimus knew Paul through his master, uh, Philemon. At some point after returning from Ephesus and the birth of the Colossian church, Onesimus ran away from his master and fled to Rome where Paul had been taken, uh, he was under arrest and he had been taken, he appealed to Caesar and he went to Rome, so both of them then ended up in Rome. Now, Onesimus may have thought that he could melt into the large city population to avoid detection. If caught, what we have to understand, if caught, if he were a slave under Roman law, he would have been subject to the whims of his master, who under Roman law could have had, had him severely punished and even killed for this transgression. Now, this is where the story gets incredibly interesting to me. I hope it will as you, to you as well. We aren't given any details, but somehow this man Onesimus came in contact with Paul who was imprisoned in Rome. Now, scholars estimate that Rome would have had anywhere between a half a million to up to four million people. Now, that is a pretty large city even by modern standards. Therefore, many people believe, many believe that it's highly doubtful that Onesimus met Paul by what we would call happenstance, right? He didn't just happen upon him because this was a very, very large city. Some, are, some scholars argue then that Onesimus must have sought Paul to help him mediate the situation between him and Philemon. Now, now we can't be exactly sure of the circumstances, but we know that their cross must have passed. They must have crossed. Now, I do know this. I do know this, though. Their meeting was not happenstance. It wasn't happenstance. God planned every detail before the foundation of the world. From our perspective, it may seem like pure circumstance, but God is actually the one who directs every circumstance. Who knows? Onesimus may have sought Paul or may have met one of Paul's companions on the street. 
He may have even seen Epaphras, who was with Paul in Rome around that time, because Epaphras would have known would have known Onesimus, right? So quite possibly, quite possibly that it could have happened that way. Another another option is that Paul may have caught wind from the guards who of of a runaway slave from Colossa. And and inquiring further, he may have found out it was Onesimus. So he may have convinced the Roman officials to release him to Epaphras or even Tychicus to return him to his master. This would explain why the Roman authorities allowed a a runaway slave to spend time with their their prisoner. I mean, it it, it would answer those questions, but we, we just don't know. Ultimately, we don't know what the exact circumstances are, but we do know that he had come to believe the gospel when he came in contact with Paul in Rome. He said, because Paul says in, in, in verse 10, that I have begotten him in my imprisonment. Now, during the ensuing time, so after that Paul and Onesimus met, the period before Paul sent him back to Philemon, the Onesimus had come very, become very dear to him. So he had become a believer uh, under Paul's preaching of the gospel, and then he had become very dear to him at that point. Now, here's the, what I want you to get out of this. Don't doubt the Lord's providence. There can be no doubt that He works out every detail of our lives. This story, if you read it, may seem like something out of a Dickens novel. Charles Dickens was a master at holding his his readers in suspense as he weaved together many uh, seemingly unrelated uh, circumstances, only to reveal at the very last moment, in the very last pages, how all those little details work together to shape the outcome. Dickens had a model. You see, friends, God is weaving together every detail in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters. He he does this to shape the outcome of our lives. According to Scripture, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And that's what we see here clearly in this story of Philemon, no matter what the little details are. We clearly see God working out the details in this man's life. So with that as our background, let's briefly study the first three verses where we'll find the first instruction for how to be a forgiving church. The first step to being a forgiving church is being a church marked by Christian fellowship. Therefore, verse 1, we must relate to one another in humility. So look at your Bibles. In Philemon 1, where Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Now, we have noted, we've already said, the author is the Apostle Paul. His greeting, this greeting here, is somewhat typical of of his other letters. But I, I want you to notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't identify himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In most of his letters, if you read through Paul's letters, he identifies himself, almost without exception, as an apostle, which obviously, and this is clear, this is something I want you to understand, obviously carries the authority of the office. Now, in those cases, he is careful to show, so he doesn't just say, I'm an apostle, he's careful to show, in most cases, that his calling as an apostle was by the will of God. So he's called by God. It's by the will of God. I mean, even in those situations where he brings the authority of the office up, he's clear that it's not by his own will that this is the case. Now, 
In this letter, he doesn't identify himself that way. Perhaps he does this. Perhaps this is because it is a personal letter. But I would argue, I would argue that while that could be true, and I think there's probably something to that, he probably does this more because he doesn't want to use his authority as an apostle to coerce Philemon's response. Now look down in verse 14. Paul clearly states that he doesn't want Philemon to act by compulsion, but rather voluntarily, by his own free will. By his own free will. I mean, he says it, says it right here. Now, in verses 17 and 18, Paul will, will lean upon Philemon not to act according to Philemon's authority. So Philemon clearly, under Roman law, has authority over Onesimus. So he has the ability to, the ability to act any way he wants. He can do anything he wants according to Roman law. He has every right as a slave owner in the Roman Empire to to punish Onesimus, but Paul is asking him to act in a very different way. In the words of Luther, Paul empties himself of his rights to compel Philemon also to waive his rights. That is something I want you to see clearly. So what he's saying is, is that I, what Paul is not saying is I, I'm an apostle who could, who could say, you release Onesimus. What he is saying is I'm a prisoner of Rome. Rome had put him in physical bondage, so he was, he was there, but he wasn't there because of the, the will of the Roman government. He was in chains because of the will of Christ. He was a prisoner because of his faithfulness to Christ in preaching the gospel that caused him to become a prisoner of Rome. It was in God's providence and God's uh, plan that he would be a prisoner of Rome, but it was God who did it, not, and it was Christ Jesus who he was ultimately a prisoner to. It has been aptly said that it was his bondage to Christ that caused him to be bound by the Roman authorities. So, Paul humbly relates to Philemon, not as an apostle, but as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He also informs him that Timothy is present as a witness to his letter. So he says, and Timothy, our brother. And Timothy, our brother. So so again, Paul could have stood on his own authority in this situation. But he wanted Philemon to know that Timothy is aware of the situation. Now, I would argue that this shows that, that Paul humbly included members of his, of his team in everything he did. You see that clearly in, all, in his letters. He, Paul didn't run this one-man show. He was keenly aware of the people God had placed around him. You see, Paul was never too big and too powerful that he overlooked the importance and usefulness of those around him. Now... This humility is modeled by how Paul related to those around him. Look, at, look back at your text in Philemon 1. He says, To Philemon, our brother, our beloved brother and fellow worker. Now pay attention to how he referred to Philemon. He, he was a beloved brother. This shows, that, this shows and, and indicates Paul's great affection for him. Now, here's, that just begs the question. Was Paul just merely buttering him up so that he gets what he wants? I don't believe that's the case. You see, Paul, in, in all of his letters, I, Paul never saw people as a means to an end. You can tell in, in his affection toward people as he, as he relates to them that he highly values each relationship. 
He worked to build each friendship on the foundation of love for one another and love for Christ. And he did this from the least to the greatest among them. Though he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he never used the obvious authority of that office to lord over others. Okay, look back at your text. He calls Philemon a fellow worker. In saying this, he puts, he puts Philemon on equal footing with himself. You see, both are slaves of Jesus Christ. Both are servants of the Lord and of the church. You see, they had different responsibilities in the kingdom, but both, in Paul's mind, are equal in Christ. Beloved, Paul's humility, clear humility, should be imitated by every saint. Should be imitated by every saint. We must understand our place in God's economy and relate, and relate to one another in humility. No one person in, in God's kingdom is more important than others. You see, we've been given the gifts of the Spirit. We are not to think more highly than our, of ourselves than we ought to think. Paul says the very, the very thing in Romans 12.3. But we should outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. He says that in, in Romans 12.10. To be a, a church marked by Christian fellowship, beloved, if we're going to be a church marked by Christian fellowship, then we must, import, must realize, secondly, the importance of fellowship. The importance of fellowship. So, so we need to see each other in the right way. We need to see each other humbly. And then we are to understand the importance of Christian fellowship. Look back at your text in Philemon 2. It says, To Aphia, our sister... And to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Now, what I want you to see is that Paul is well aware of the structure of this church. Now, as we read this, I hope that you are struck by the fact that, that Paul, he's in Rome, and he understands what's going on in this church in Colossae, which is many miles away. It was a, it's clear that they were a church that the church of Colossae was a church that understood the, the importance of fellowship and, and Christian unity. Now, as I stated earlier, Philemon was the main recipient of this letter, yet Paul addresses some other people. And I think it gives us insight into what was going on in this church. First is Aphia, who Paul identifies as the sister, or our sister. It literally says in the Greek, the sister. It's hard to know for sure who she is, but it is clear that she's a prominent member of the church. Now, since this is a personal correspondence, most likely she is Philemon's wife. She may have been, now as Philemon's wife, she may have been active in ministry at the church. I mean, we know, according to this verse, that the church meets in her home. So clearly she had to be, uh, she had to be clearly involved in ministry at the church. And she would have known, if this is the case, if she was Philemon's wife, she would have known Onesimus personally because he was probably a household slave. Now Paul addresses this woman, Aphia, as a sister in Christ, showing that he uh, views her as a fellow saint. It also shows that Paul understood her to be important within this church. 
Now, it's, on a side note, it's fascinating that in a culture, in that culture, which looked down upon women, that Paul would directly address a woman in his letter, showing that, that in, in the church, in the early church, women were held, rightly held in high regard in that, in that culture, the church culture, that is. Now, Paul also mentions a man named Archippus. Now, considering the structure of Paul's address, I would, I would argue that this is probably Philemon's son. He calls him a fellow soldier, a term that suggests that he was a significant contributor to the ministry there in that church. He also used that same description for Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25. You see, Paul saw Archippus as a, a soldier. Said a, a different way, he is a man dedicated to the battle. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, Paul called uh, Timothy to suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So then, what, what, then he describes what, it, what the life of a good soldier is. He says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. See, Paul identified Archippus in that way. Now, here's what's interesting. He also says, he also mentions them in Colossians 4. So again, Philemon, the letter to Philemon and Colossians are, are twin letters. And so, so they're both going to the same church. And so he mentions them in, in Colossians 4.17. He says this, Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. That's a very interesting statement considering that in Philemon, he says, Philemon, he says, uh, that he's a soldier, a fellow soldier. So if a soldier is to, is to be dedicated, Paul is telling him, hey, be dedicated. Focus on the ministry in order that you may fulfill it. Now, Paul's message to Archippus then is similar to when Paul called Timothy to fulfill his ministry in 2 Timothy 4.5. Now, here's what I, here's what's, I want to make of this. Now, I don't want to read too much into Paul's exhortation, but I wonder, I wonder if Paul, if Paul knows that this situation with Onesimus has the potential to create major problems in the Colossian church. You see, if word got back through other channels that Paul had taken Onesimus in, the response may have caused great disunity in the church. Quite possibly, this is, this issue and maybe some other things have become a source of distraction for Archippus even. So Paul, this would explain why Paul exhorts him to maintain focus on the ministry in Colossians 4 and call him a fellow soldier in this letter. You see, if Aphia is Philemon's wife and Archippus is their son, then they, they are a wealthy and influential family in the church. You've got you to get that picture. And because of this, they would be a prime target that Satan could use to confuse and disrupt the ministry of the church. And I think this, is the, this may be the reason that Paul addresses the whole church in this personal correspondence. Now look back at your Bibles. Look back at your Bibles. It says, he addresses Aphia and Archippus, then he says, and to the church in your house. You see, Paul is aware of the potential threats to fellowship and unity. Now, now there, are, there are a couple of things I want you to see here. First, is we ju first we just mentioned, Paul addresses the church in this matter. Clearly, this matter had the potential to negatively affect the church. And, and there, there it is, 
that there is a, that, and it is probable that the, that the matter may have even been uh, public already. You could make, you could make the case that this is a lawyer's tactic. Therefore, he, he may have been making the matter public to pressure Philemon to make the, the right decision. But I don't think that's what Paul is doing. I don't think that's what he's doing. I would, that would undo the effort that, he, that, that he's made to approach the matter without appealing to his authority. So instead of appealing to himself as an apostle, he's just appealing to the church so he can force Philemon to do what he wants. But I don't think that's what's happening. I, I would argue that Paul addresses the church in this matter because of the importance of Christian fellowship. The situation, the situation as it presented itself had the potential to be divisive. Here, here's the picture. The church met in Philemon's home. Philemon was uh, highly influential. One could very easily see the potential for a church split if this wasn't dealt with righteously. They, they could be, there could be great differences on the matter. And Paul, I think, saw that and understood it. We know from the letter of Colossians that they already faced pressure from teachers challenging the deity of Christ and introducing elements of Jewish legalism. So this church was under attack, and I think Paul understood that it was clearly under attack by Satan. And he had great concern for them. They certainly didn't need this continuing distraction, so Paul wrote to Philemon hoping for a quick and righteous resolution, one that preserved the fellowship. Now, all Christians must be willing to battle against the forces threatening to tear us apart. We can't miss that those same forces that were threatening to tear the Colossian church apart, we can't miss that those same forces are at play in our own body. We must never take fellowship for granted. We must be willing to love one another through the good and the bad. We must be open with one another, and we must identify the threats to our unity. If any one of us, if any one of us, harbor ill will toward another, we must heed the Apostle Paul's model in this letter. And in doing so, we must recognize the role of grace. Recognize the role of grace. Look at Philemon 3. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul commonly uses this, this phrase in his letters. And both I would argue both touch on the truth of the gospel. As Christians, we are saved by grace. And by the way, we live by that same grace. That's what Paul taught in Ephesians 2, 8-10. through in, in the words of Douglas Moo, who is a commentator on this, on this book of Philemon, this little letter, grace marks the extraordinarily free an unmerited gift of his son that stands at the center of the gospel. And I think that, that Paul, this is not a throwaway phrase for Paul. For Paul is saying, his, Paul is being very pointed in this, in this phrase. He's, he's reminding Philemon and he's reminding the Colossian church of the grace that has set them free. And, and the, of God's free grace. Now the idea of peace or the peace has the idea of, of well-being. Uh, the Hebrew word shalom captures the idea. In Christ, we have peace with God. So God is, we have peace with God, and we, because of we have peace with God, then we have peace with one another. 
God our Father and the Lord Jesus are the, the source of this grace and the resulting peace that we have. Beloved, as Christians, we are no longer at war with God. But let me say it a better way. He is no longer at war with us. Therefore, therefore, we are no longer at war with one another. But we have to remember that. And if we do remember that we have peace with God, Philippians 4, 7, there's a great promise. He said, Paul says, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The truth is, is that if we remember God's grace, if we remember that we have been forgiven, then it makes it easy to forgive one another. It leads to peace within the brethren and with our brethren. It gives us the ability, remembering God's grace, remembering how much we have been forgiven, gives us the ability to swear to our own hurt and not change. We're called to do that. We're called to do that. When we have been wronged, when we have been wronged, we, we are not to lash out at one another, but we are to forgive one another. We're called to swear to our own hurt and keep course. A man who does that never takes advantage of, advantage of those around him for personal gain. And I believe that's why Paul says grace to you and peace. Is that he's reminding Philemon. He's reminding Philemon that even though you have the ability to do whatever you want with Onesimus, I'm telling you now that forgiveness is what you need to do. Because doing otherwise will have great negative effect on the church. I think, it's that in, that, I think it's that crucial and critical what he's doing. As I think about forgiveness, I think about those who don't know Christ. As I think about this grace and the resulting peace, I think about those who are not in Christ today. You know, if you're here today and you don't know anything about God's grace and peace, perhaps you feel the weight of guilt for your sin. Or maybe even there's a root of unforgiveness that has resulted in great bitterness. Maybe you're sitting here today with great bitterness in your heart over something somebody has done for many years or many years ago, or maybe they've done it over and over and over to you. The Bible tells us, Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the way to defeat that bitterness. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Many marriages have been destroyed by a lack of forgiveness. 
Many churches, as I said, have said over and over, and I think that's the purpose of this letter. Many, many marriages have been destroyed. Many churches have been destroyed because of a lack of forgiveness, because of prideful hearts. But you can't forgive others if you've not been forgiven. The world says you can't accomplish this without first forgiving yourself. Have you, ever, have you heard that? Yet I've noticed that those who say that they have forgiven themselves usually say it in the context of justifying their selfish acts. I'm about to say something that may rock your world. I hope it does if it needs to. The Scriptures say nothing about forgiving yourself. Nothing. Nothing about forgiving yourself. The Bible only speaks of God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. Friends, the answer is found in being forgiven by our Creator for our transgressions against Him, first and foremost. First and foremost. The guilt and bitterness that we experience can only be defeated when we acknowledge that we have sinned against a holy God who alone forgives sins and trespasses. And we receive, this goes back to the unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever here today, we receive that forgiveness at the foot of the cross by the blood of Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1.7. He has forgiven our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. On the cross, he took all his sins upon, all our sins, not his sins, all our sins upon himself. He suffered the wrath of the Father. He became sin on our behalf that we would receive his righteousness. We receive that righteousness by faith. By faith. By faith that he went to the cross. By faith that he lived a perfect life. By faith that He defeated the grave. By faith that He sits at the right hand of the Father right now, reigning on high. And by faith that you too are in Him on the throne. By faith. By faith. If you don't know Him today, if you don't know Him today, I urge you, I beg you, I beg you to turn from your sins and trust the ever-living One who pleads for you. Reminds me, of, reminds me of the hymn, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Faith has found a resting place. If you are here today and you know Christ, you will resonate with this, these words. But if you don't know Christ, they may seem like rubbish to you. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would quicken your heart so that you might believe even now Verse 1 of the song, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living One. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to Him. He'll never cast me out. My heart is leaning on the Word, the written Word of God. 
Salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through His blood. My great physician heals the sick. Most powerful word of the line in the song. The lost He came to save. For me His precious blood He shed. For me His life He gave. And the chorus I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is that your anthem here today? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this this morning, this afternoon for the cross. May we as Christians understand that we have received forgiveness for so much. So we must be forgiving. We're called to be forgiving. Forgiving as as people, forgiving as a church. May we see, Lord, it's not by authority that we can that we can force others to forgive, that we need to humbly approach them relationally, understanding, Lord, that You have wrought us together by one Spirit in love. May we live according to this truth. In Christ's name, amen.